Well, we had a good trip. Uh, we went to, um, we did other things, but we also uh, looked at a bunch of colleges and um, just uh, have no more answers now than we had when we left, but we've got more, maybe better questions. Um, but we traveled back yesterday. We got back um, early morning Saturday, and so because we traveled on Saturday, we missed out on the opportunity to take part in any of the Black Friday craziness. Did did any of you do Black Friday craziness? No, 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 no. Well, some of you did because we did some grocery shopping and we did some other shopping yesterday once we got home, and I saw signs, telltale signs that Black Friday had happened. There were these bins of doorbusters, you know, the 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 bins and you know I don't know what was what was in four of the bins because they were empty but then there was the fifth bin that had the doorbusters nobody wanted you know kind of the the island of misfit toys doorbusters where even at Black Friday prices no one would take them so um, we saw lots of that yesterday so I know some people did some Black Friday shopping I'm not much of a Black Friday shopper um, I used to be but you know it it I always had that sense that I, I get there and the 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 bin is empty the doorbusters I wanted are empty, and so all I've got is this other stuff. You know, kind of what's the point of getting up early um, if there's people who are willing to camp out overnight and and get there even earlier and get the good thing? So, um, so I kind of felt like, you know, what what is the point of Black Friday? I don't I don't really um, enjoy it the way I used to. Um, if I do any Black Friday shopping, I do it online, and then I find out the deal's expired. So that's <laughs> that's the online version of the the empty doorbuster bin. But you know that that sensation. Why should I bother? You know. This is the season of Advent. We've begun the season of Advent. That is the, the beginning of the church year. We actually begin the church year before the, the uh, secular year. We begin um, four weeks before Christmas. So uh, we are now on the first Sunday of Advent. We're going to have uh, three more Sundays after this, and then we'll celebrate Christmas Eve. And um, then the rest of the year, we kind of are just a month ahead of the rest of the world. So so. Uh, our year begins, but during Advent, the idea of Advent is we spend some time thinking about Christmas, not not just kind of, you know, what kind of toys do I want or whatever, but but really why is there Christmas? We think about why why Jesus? Why did Jesus come? You know, what was the reason that God sent Jesus to the earth? Why did Jesus become a human? Why why um why did he do that? What was the purpose that Jesus had in mind? Why why did he come here? And, and was he successful in his, in his mission? Whatever it was Jesus was trying to do, we think about whether he succeeded. And if you've been in church in any length of time at all, you would have heard somewhere along the way people tell you that Jesus came to do what we couldn't do. Jesus came to save us. We needed a savior. We couldn't save ourselves. So Jesus came to be the savior. But that raises the question, if Jesus came to do something I couldn't do, then isn't that kind of like Black Friday, you know? I couldn't get there on time. Jesus did the thing, so what's my role now? If Jesus has done something I couldn't do, what's my response? How do I how do I respond to the fact that Jesus has done something I couldn't do? So these are the questions we concern ourselves with during Advent. And we're going to look at a story from the Old Testament. One of the things about Advent is it's looking forward to Christmas, or uh, we would say today looking forward to the return of Christ, but they are forward-looking passages of Scripture we'll be looking at in the next couple of weeks. And so we're looking at one now from the Old Testament, the book of Kings. Israel, the, the land of Israel, had a period of time for about 400, 400 years 
where um, where I'm hallucinating, um, where the microphone was working differently. Uh, Israel had a Israel had a period of time for about 400 years where there were where the nation was was run by uh, kings, um, and there were about 40 different kings, um, which is too many if you kind of do the math. But the reason is because. Israel spent a lot of that 400-year period as a divided monarchy. There was a civil war early on, right after King David and King Solomon. There was a civil war, except it wasn't much of a war, because imagine the American Civil War of the previous um, uh, two centuries ago now, um, if every state except Florida had left the country. You know, it wouldn't have been much of a civil war, because Florida couldn't have fought them all, and at the same time... um, they don't want to be part of the country. So that's pretty much what happened with Israel. All the, all the, all the parts of the, the country in the north left, leaving just the smallest piece in the south. So that was the, the nation of Judah, and the rest of it got the name of Israel. So that was the situation. They each had their own kings. The kings in the north were not very good kings. Um, the best of them is kind of mediocre, and most of them are bad kings. In Israel, I mean, in Judah, in the south, the kings were a little better. Some of them were mediocre. Some of them were evil, and some of them were good. So we're going to hear a story about a guy named uh, Josiah, who was one of the good ones. But interestingly, Josiah did not come from a line of good kings. His grandfather Manasseh and his father Ammon were bad kings, and their story is in the previous chapter. But Manasseh, interestingly, is the worst of the kings in the southern kingdom. There there were worse ones in the northern kingdom, maybe, uh, you know, hard to choose. But Manasseh was the worst one in the, the country of Judah. So uh, this good king Josiah comes from the line of Manasseh, this terrible king. And like many of the bad kings, he was an idolater. He profaned the temple. He brought in he brought in idols and made the wrong kind of sacrifices in the temple. And you would imagine that the writers of Scripture would be very upset about that. But Manasseh's um, badness went beyond that. And Manasseh was um, engaged in human sacrifice. Uh, we read in chapter 21, it says Manasseh... Um, uh, caused his son to go through the fire, to pass through the fire. That was the, the language, the conventional language for what would happen in a human sacrifice. And Manasseh picked up this idea from one of the surrounding cultures that did this routinely. And um, so he, he practiced these detestable practices. He um, was engaged in necromancy. And I don't even know what, what necromancy is. I think of, you know, uh, it's reanimating the dead. But I don't even know what that would have meant in the time of, of the second kings. You know, I think of uh, Victor Frankenstein in the castle and stuff. So I don't know what necromancy meant, but it sounds pretty terrible. And uh, we read that even in his day-to-day running of the country, he he, sacri- he he shed much innocent blood. He ruled with a heavy hand. He didn't really care how many innocent people got hurt as long as he could maintain control. And as a result, he stayed in power for quite a long time. He was actually the longest-running king of the southern kingdom. He He ruled for 55 years, and he was able to do a lot of a lot of evil in that time. During the course of that, a prophet came to him and said that God wasn't going to put up with it. God could not ignore the kind of things that Manasseh was doing. God could not, in justice, allow uh, this wickedness to take place, the, the necromancy and the idolatry, the, the human sacrifice, and the shedding of innocent blood. So the prophet told him that God was going to bring a devastation on the land ruled by Manasseh. And God says through the prophet that the desolation will be so great that the ears of those who hear of it will tingle. 
So a terrible curse God places on this country during the time of Manasseh. And then Manasseh dies and his son Ammon takes over. Ammon is just as bad. Ammon may even be worse. We don't know because there was a coup uh, uh, during his second year in power and he was uh, he was um, killed and um, the, the conspirators wanted to, to replace him and loyal loyal members of the of the palace guard or whatever they they stopped the coup and they put Josiah on the throne that's why he took the throne at the age of 8 and that's where we pick up the story in chapter 22 so a lot of context there but that helps us to understand what happened with Josiah so Josiah is a good king and uh, he's he's 8 when he begins ruling uh, there's probably a period of regency where somebody else is making a lot of the decisions. But 18 years into his reign, after he's become an adult and he's running the country by himself, he says it's time to repair the temple. He has some sense that that the things that his grandfather and father had been involved in in the temple were were a, kind of a, a, a unresolved problem that he needed to fix. So he sends his secretary of state, Shaphan, to the temple and says, the, I'm going to release the funds that had been locked up, that there had been this collection that had been taking place over time. And the king had not permitted in the past, the previous kings had not permitted it to be used for the upkeep of the temple. And so he's saying, I'm going to free that account so now it can be used for those purposes. So that is what Shafan does. And when he gets there, or at some point in the, in the course of this project, uh, Hilkiah the priest says, we found the book of the law. We don't know why it was lost. Presumably, sometime during the during the time of the previous two kings, uh, the evil kings, it had been lost. Maybe what had happened is a is a faithful priest had hidden it, and then the priest was was executed or something. We don't know how it came to be lost. But during the course of these temple repairs, it was discovered and it was presented to the king. And um, I cut this for, sh- for, for space just because the bulletin doesn't have a lot of room. But when the king hears it, when he hears it read to him, he tears his clothes. He is horrified at how, how terrible the curses are that are in this book of the law. Um, scholars tell us the book of the law was probably Deuteronomy. It might have been another section of the Bible that included uh, Deuteronomy, but it certainly would have included the book of Deuteronomy. Um, not yet, not yet. Back up, back up. That's the big reveal. So, um, so... Uh, so it was, it was probably including the book of Deuteronomy. Um, and uh, so he hears these, these curses that are in the book of Deuteronomy to, to a king who would lead the people astray, and he's horrified. He tears his clothes, and he sends this delegation to the prophetess. It says he sent um, Hilkiah, Ahikam, and all those other names to Huldah, the wife of those other names, and, um, and says, is it too late? Have I arrived at this Black Friday sale too late? Is there is there nothing I can do to fix things? Is there some way I can repair the damage? And Huldah says, no. Huldah says, no. God cannot ignore the injustice that has been taking place under the reigns of these previous kings, in particular, your grandfather and father. God cannot ignore that. And there's nothing you can do to repair that damage. But then Huldah says, however, because your heart was penitent, you humbled yourself. Because you have torn your clothes and wept before me, I also have heard you. God says, because when you heard what was going to happen, it broke your heart. 
I've heard you too. He says, there's nothing you can do to stop this. It's inevitable, but I will delay it so you will go to your grave in peace. And they took the message back to the king. Now, what's really interesting there is what does the king do? What does he do when he realizes there's nothing he can do and whatever it is, it won't affect him personally? What does he do? What Josiah does is he says, I'm going to commit myself to God. So really, in a sense, there's no reward in it for him. He knows that he can't fix the damage. But Josiah says, I'm going to commit myself to God. So he assembles the the leaders and the great and the small, and he has this solemn assembly at the temple, and he commits himself to obey God. Why does he do that? I mean, he's not, it's not, you know, it's no skin off his nose. Why would he do that? Is that an answer? What, what, what's your answer? Oh. Okay. Okay. Well, I, I would be delighted to hear your answer, okay, Trenton? I'm gonna, I'm gonna ask you, I'm gonna ask you later, okay? Okay, I'd be happy to hear it. Um, so, uh, why does, why does Josiah do it? I think part of the reason is the same reason he repaired the temple. I think he had a sense that the law of God was intrinsically good. I think he had a sense that God is not trying to spoil his fun. You know, Manasseh and Ammon, the, the people who did what was wicked, you know, who knows what their motivations were, but, but Josiah had a sense that God's law is good. You know, when the doctor tells you that you need to eat right and, and exercise, the, the doctor is not being arbitrary. He's not doing that just to take away your fun. He's doing it because he wants you to be healthy. And I think Josiah had a, had a sense, maybe an inspired sense, that the law of God was designed to bring healing and wholeness to society. So I think that was part of the reason. But I think the reason, the deep down reason, or the reason beyond that, was because he heard from the prophetess that God keeps his promises. And he had just heard the whole book of Deuteronomy. And he heard the promises in Deuteronomy. And there are terrible curses in Deuteronomy. But at the end of Deuteronomy, it says this. And here's our, here's our verse. It says, If you return to the Lord your God, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have compassion on you. So Josiah says, God is a promise keeper. And yes, that means the promises he made to my grandfather Manasseh to 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 wreak vengeance on all the people who followed this terrible king, all the people who were caught up in what he was doing, the, the shedding of innocent blood, the necromancy. God keeps his promises because God is a God of justice. But God is also one who keeps his promises to be merciful. And if somebody had asked Josiah, well, how can that possibly be? How can he be just and merciful. How can he punish wrongdoing and be merciful? Josiah would have had nothing to say except, I don't know. I don't know how God can work that out except he just did it for me. He just showed me mercy while being committed to justice. And he says, that's the God I want to commit myself to follow. I want to follow a God who is committed to justice but shows mercy. And so he did. He committed himself. He made a public covenant before God to obey the book of the law. And that brings us to Jesus. Because the prophetess told Josiah, you're a good king. 
but you're not good enough. You can't undo the damage of all the bad kings that have come before you. You're not perfect. What's needed is a perfect king. And so God sent a perfect king. God sent his son Jesus to be born into the line of King David so he could become the perfect king ruling in the order of all of his predecessors who had done good and evil. Jesus came to satisfy the demands of God for both justice and mercy because Jesus, as the perfect king, took on himself all the sin of the world, the sins that had been committed back at that time and all the ones we've committed since and the ones we have yet to commit. Jesus took all the sin of the world on himself. And on the cross, God poured out the justice, the wrath, on the sin as Jesus hung on the cross. And when Jesus was raised, everyone who was attached to Jesus, everyone who was born of the the flesh of Adam, was raised to new life. God gives us both justice and mercy. So what do we do? I think the answer is we do what Josiah did. We commit ourselves to follow this God. And if you have not committed yourself to follow God, let me invite you to join in this prayer. I can't pray it for you, but I can give you words and you can assent to it if it's something that you believe in. So let me let me close with this prayer. Let's pray. Loving God, like Josiah, we are not bad people. We're not, we're not Manasseh. We're not evil. But we're caught up in a world full of evil. And we have not escaped unscathed. We are affect, affected by the evil around us. It gets into us. We live in it like a fish in water, and it comes into us and becomes part of us. And so we tremble at the notion that you are a just God, that you do not ignore evil. But we take hope because you are God who keeps your promise. And in time, you sent your son Jesus to keep your promises so that there would be a way to resolve the need for justice and mercy. So, Lord, we commit ourselves this day to follow Jesus, to obey his teaching, to be part of his movement, to make disciples in his church, to become part of what he is doing, to bring about grace and justice both in this world. We pray these things through Christ our Lord. Amen.